Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. This program was recorded on the 22nd of April, 2020. This featured discussion teams up Dave Snowden and Dr. Arthur Shelley. Dave divides his time between two roles, founder and chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge and the founder and director of the Center for Applied Complexity at the University of Wales. His work is international in nature and covers government and industry, looking at complex issues relating to strategy and decision-making. Dr. Arthur Shelley is a collaborative community builder, researcher, and creative educator slash designer facilitator serving corporate, government, and tertiary education sectors. Internationally, he is known and acknowledged as a knowledge and capability development thought leader and community builder. So here we are. The topics have gone back and forth for possible focus. I, my first question is, is there a moment where knowledge management and crisis management are the same? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think I always got disturbed by the title knowledge management in the first place. I mean, I was involved in decision support systems. And the reality is people don't manage knowledge, they manage information. Um, you know, the famous adaptation of Polanyi saying, we always know more than we can say, we will always say more than we can write down. So I think... Yeah, there's an element of this um, where knowledge management is back in the fore, but not if we take an info management or information-centric approach on it. So, for example, we just created journal systems um, for leaders to capture. You know, what have I learned? What have I missed? What are, you know, what learning opportunities? And we're also putting that in for doctors, for nurses, for families. Because the critical thing in a crisis is you capture the learning as you're going. Um, if you do it retrospectively, you can't trust it. Retrospective coherence is a major problem. I think the other big thing is you've got to actually see it as a, as a chance for innovation. So during the crisis, you can innovate. After the crisis, you won't. So I think there's a lot that knowledge management can provide to this, but it's got to be the knowledge-centric, not the information-centric approach. And I'm afraid that's probably about 5% of knowledge management practice. Arthur? Uh, I think from a knowledge point of view, it's a big opportunity to emphasise the importance of knowledge in particular, uh, and I agree with Dave, not information, but, but knowledge. How do we act in the moment? What can we learn from this? What kind of uh, actions are generating? What kind of uh, results and you know what? What are the manageable constraints? The, the the importance here is that we're looking and critically assessing what we're observing, and then deciding what to act on in the moment. And I think this is where uh, the Australian government got a lot of things right. And they're not my favourite people, and I didn't vote for them, <laughs> but actually they are managing this very well, and and they have levelled the curve. And yesterday we had zero new cases, mm. just. You, you need to, to watch the second curve. 100%. You know, like the, the, the flu pandemic of 19... <clears throat> excuse me, 19... Singapore is surging at the moment. And and that's exactly what I mean, Dave, and, and your, your, your comment about, you know, uh, applying knowledge in real time is, is 100% valid because already, a bit like California, a lot of people are saying, oh, great, we can go back to work now. 
1918 pandemic, the second wave killed more than the first and was more was more deadly um, because people started to relax. I mean, San Francisco in the, in the first pandemic completely pretty much avoided or certainly managed uh, uh, the whole situation very well and really weren't significantly impacted. But when the second one came around, they they were, oh, well, we, we've already beat it. And it, it, it really crippled the, the, the city. Um, you know, the protests in California, I think, uh, with the people saying, you know, uh, my choice, my body, you know, I'm allowed to go back to work, you know, um, this is like unfair. They actually acted quicker than New York and the results are obvious. But the problem there is, is they're not managing the knowledge that they've got and they're not yeah. looking looking at the signals well. I just want to bring up a point because I know Dave talked about the journaling piece, which gives agency mm. to input and participation at a really grassroots or a wider level than just the architecture of the either corporate structure or government structure of who's in charge. So is there an opportunity here? Because I hear what you're saying as far as understanding what has happened in the past to help predict the future, but who's doing it? Yeah, you've got you've got several things going on, all right? So I think, first of all, minor disagreement with Arthur, but it's only a minor one. I actually don't think we should be evaluating. I think we should be describing. Yeah, during a crisis, and, and the thing that we set the journey up is we just want descriptions of what's happening because we need to look after the event at those descriptions and see what was in it. If we start to evaluate, we'll start to filter what we see. So this is kind of like 101 cognitive neuroscience. We only see what we expect to see. So evaluation actually further narrows that. So that, that's one comment, right? I think the other thing is we're not going to be able to return to normal. So the level of bankruptcies is going to be too high. And the type of practice which is, goes on, and I've worked for home for the last 15, 20 years, right? So it's not unusual. But for some people, it's dramatic, right? Um, and even for me, it's kind of like I'm missing social contact, right, in, in terms of the way it works. We've got all Western governments are theoretically bankrupt. Yeah, so basically, the whole concept of neoliberal economics or market economics is shot. And some of us were arguing this a year ago. We, we did a, a retreat, and I brought David Chalmers along, who's argued on the Anthropocene. As we've hit the Anthropocene, modernist, postmodernist, capitalist, Marxist, there are irrelevant distinctions. And I think the real opportunity here, and the thing which worries me, and this is a knowledge complexity strategy problem, is this is nothing compared with the casualties we're going to get from global warming within my lifetime, and I'm 67. So if we don't seize this opportunity to rethink the way we manage society, then the next one's even going to be even more disastrous, right? And that's not just a KM problem, as I say, it's, it's other things. You know, the final thing on this is kind of like complexity theory has come to the fore on this because we've been arguing for a long time that the last, you know, three, four decades, a decade of systems thinking were based on an engineering metaphor and the assumption you could plan and control and that you would actually remove human judgment from the equation because, you know, the whole thing was process-based. What complexity, particularly anthro-complexity, has been arguing is that human judgment is key and systems are inherently unpredictable. And because we've been arguing that for the past decade, people are now coming along because they realize that's the situation we're in. So we've got this massive paradigm shift going on in the way we think about organizations and we think about the world. 
And how that pans out is an open question. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and like I sort of prattle on about, you know, behavioural adaptability, your, uh, your, your ability to adjust in, in the moment is like in normal sort of society, people are influenced by the environment that they're in. But, you know, this is a real opportunity to then influence the environment by the way we beha- behave and act <clears throat> and, and how quickly or, or how long we uh, um, sort of... There are no bomb trails over my house every morning. So we're, we're on the, the main route in from the transatlantic. So when I'm flying back home from Boston or somewhere, I can see my house. Mm. But the sky is without comm trails and there are no diesel teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it's incredible, isn't it? And, and the price of oil is now in negative. You know, people are paying, uh, it, particularly in the US, where they're you got to pay or same in the UK. It's, it's uh, mind you, the fuel prices in Australia uh, have haven't dropped significantly uh, uh, because they're saying, oh, we, you know, we, we're getting our oil well, from somewhere else. Drive anyway, we can't drive. It's uh, um, we, we're not allowed to go out either. The thing about behavioural adaptability is uh, people are so patterned. Uh, and it's natural, you know, that is the way uh, our brains work. We get into patterns, we automate stuff, we do things kind of without thinking because it's efficient, right? And the economy is the same, you know, it's it's run by a bunch of algorithms on, on the stock exchanges. Mm. But, you know, they're not thinking uh, enough about, you know, what's really going on. Dave's comment about money has no value. I mean, the stock market is is a belief system. It's, 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 it's you know, the stock market goes up and down on things like, you know, confidence. <laughs> gone down with zero oil i mean we haven't debated about this earlier normally if oil price drops but it certainly went to negative the stock markets would crash but they haven't mm. so yes. I, th- I think nobody quite knows at the moment right and i think there's, there's interesting concepts i mean i've argued for years that there's no reason why we shouldn't give free at the point of entry healthcare and education worldwide it's just we choose to ration it with money so we ration the number of doctors we've got by making it very expensive to become a doctor. There's no need for us to do that as a society. And I think those are the questions which are now being asked and asked by some quite serious players worldwide. You know, that, um, you know, gifting, for example, which is common in indigenous communities, actually has economic models we can apply in Western society. So I think it's, it's a genuine chance to rethink that, to be honest. And I, the thing which encourages me and one of the reasons I'm spending this much time on, on the thing is, you know, conversations with some very serious players as people are starting to think about this. And, and I think we should be really encouraging those conversations to be quite exploratory mm-hmm. because we've now got this opportunity. How often do you get the opportunity to completely change everything? You know, like, you know, Dave's work is, is you know, phenomenal. The, the Kinevan model, I think, is the most powerful model that, that exists for decision making and I'm not just you know sucking up to Dave I teach it to all of my students I use it every day myself just you remember know. it's a framework not a model so he can sorry I'm writing this handbook for the with the European Union because they adopted Kinevin as a strategic framework yep. that are completely in government just when my own country was stupid enough to leave right but we're actually writing with their design team the handbook on chaos and complexity you know sort of inspired by Kinevin so I think yeah, as, as I said earlier, I think it's the age of complexity we're, we're entering now. And that's an age of inherent uncertainty. And the interesting thing is actually human beings aren't bad at this. We're actually quite resilient as a species. Um, I, I would say we've adapted quite well. I mean, 
there aren't riots on the street in Britain, whereas some of us thought they might be. I mean, they may be coming, but there aren't at the moment. You know, I, I do the shopping because Sheila can't leave the house. So the queue for the supermarket is terribly civilized. You know, we're all separated yep. two meters. You know, we go in, there's only 50 people there, and a lot of us are saying, well, yeah, actually, this is quite a good way to do it. Could we please carry on, all right? Yeah. And there's a sort of civilization about that. I mean, okay, we've lost the pub, but the pub's doing takeaway, everybody's supporting it. There's an element that we've almost become pastoral in our lifestyle. I think that's the, the, the advantages of it. I'm not, I'm not saying we get bucolic as well. Let's see what Arthur's got on this. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think uh, Dave and I are always going to see things in similar ways, but but with differences. And and but that's the beauty of real society, isn't it? The ability to engage in what I call creative friction. This this you know exchange, constructive exchange of differing opinions, creates the new possibility. You know, um, if we're arguing over, you know, sort of what is rather than what is possible. And how do you explore what is possible if you're stuck within a pattern? And I think, you know, a crisis is, uh, as Dave pointed out earlier, a great opportunity to at least get people to start looking for something different. Whereas, you know, if people are comfortably numb, you know, sort of floating along in, in their daily patterns, it's very, very hard to disrupt that unless you get something where, oh, well, I no longer have a choice. Gary Klein's work around, you know, sort of uh, where insights come from. One of them is, is, you know, basically you're forced to do it. But a much better way is to open your mind to this on a daily basis, to be adaptable, to be exploring. So you're in a, a divergent mode instead of a convergent mode. Of course, you need both, right? I mean, you, 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 if you come up with 100 possibilities, you then need to wind it down to say, well, which one's best? But in a crisis, you don't always have time to do that properly. But that creates new knowledge, and it's the co-creation of new knowledge across a divergent set of perspectives that really is is a magic formula in a case like this. There is a tone here between the two of you that is almost like we're going to, civilization's wiping the slate, and we're going to try again. Are we in a reconstruct mode of what worked, what didn't work? Because there seems to be systemic similarities across the world in dealing with this. Yeah, but you've got, you've got negative patterns as well. And I think that there's a bifurcation point, all right, which happens. So if you look at what's happening in the US and the UK, right, which are the two countries with the populist governments when we least could have done with it, they're both trying to demonize the WHO. So, and they're both banning immigration. So they're taking that approach. And that's a sort of patriarchal feudalism. Now, if you go back to the Middle Ages, the most common response to plague and famine and yeah, is feudalism. Right? So that's the most probable outcome. And the issue is how can we prevent that? Now, one of the ways we can prevent it is to decrease the connectivity and knowledge sharing peer-to-peer in broad populations. And that's what we're focused on with the work we're doing with learning journals, mass participation in scenarios about the future and things like that. Because unless people connect horizontally, well, you know, feudalism is the alternative. The problem is social media makes this worse, not better. <laughs> so a friend of mine in the Mounties famously said, you know, it didn't you know, it used to be that every village had an idiot, but it didn't matter because everybody knew who they were. But then the idiots banded together on the internet to legitimize idiocy and elect the president of the United States, right? Um, which I think is a beautiful way of putting it, right? But the reality is social media has, has forced us into more narrow styles and made us more available for exploitation. 
there's some interesting factors on this, like food, all right? So New Zealand and the UK are potentially food self-sufficient. So as you try and reduce and hold your borders, do we get into a more localized form of, uh, of economy yeah, with higher local dependency without external dependency? So you can see that sort of thing starting to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So I think that there's all sorts of positive ideas and there's evidence people are thinking about it, particularly in the agencies. But the danger of, of populist populism is still there and the demonization is still there. And people of goodwill haven't learned to fight mm. this yet. I mean, for my many and various sins, I have to read Trump's tweets every morning. <laughs> and the thing that Trump does, which is genius, is he uses key phrases to activate what are called tropes or attractor mechanisms, which suck people into a process by which they can't see wh- you know, where things are going wrong. And I hate to tell you this, but the populists are better at manipulating the internet than the people of goodwill. So until we seize that back and we seize back the mechanism of communication, yeah, I, I would assume a negative outcome rather than a positive outcome. Arthur? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. One, you know, the, the whole sort of deliberately manicured channels uh, um, to, you know, uh, to create a following at a very shallow level is, is a real problem. People, uh, like any brains at all, can look at, you know, the kinds of things that, you know, some of these leaders say, and you go, well, there's no way in hell they can deliver that. That's that's just stupid, you know. But at a very shallow level, if you don't think, people say, oh, I want that. You know, he's the guy or she's the one or, you know, and they, they follow these people that make these absolutely, you know, insanely stupid remarks because it sounds good to them. It's, it's a bit like the fluffy bunny idealistic stuff, you know. It's like, well, of course we all agree to the concept, but the concept isn't realisable. And, and that's the problem. People buy into it because it sounds good without that, you know, sort of, you know, critical thinking uh, uh, ability to say, well, well, hang on a minute, how are they going to do that? And, of course, these days politicians get elected on these bases, yeah. uh, and it's very sad. It is. It's not just the right-wing populace. It's everybody, all right? So this is fundamental way that human beings have evolved. You, you get these sort of tropes or attractors or assemblages. So they're patterns of narrative which effectively act as a constraint and you find it difficult to, to escape. So those of us who are sort of white, liberal, scientific, etc., have our own tropes as well. Um, and there's a key concept in complexity called an adjacent possible. Um, and I think we need, to, and it's why I've argued for a long time that people like Senge and Otto Scharmaker are neo-colonialists. Because what they've actually got is a sort of if everybody was like us, the world would be a better place. People have got that. If everybody is rational and reasonable, the world would be a better place. There's all these sort of statements. The fact is the world has never been rational and reasonable. We always delegate decision-making to other groups. And from the end of the Second World War until recently, we delegated to experts, but that didn't work, so we've tried populists. So I think we we need to rethink that rational, non-rational thing as well. Every time somebody on the left attacks Trump, they make him stronger, not weaker. Because the nature of the attack is the way that the sort of narratives are built up to handle it. So I think, and, and I did some field ethnography on Tea Party communities in the States. And what's interesting is they're socialist in their practice. Yeah. And I think we've got to, we've got to change the abstraction level. So we've got to see, we've got to see beyond the conventional barriers that we've created over the last five or six decades and start to rethink the way that interaction happens at a local level. 
And the key principle on complexity in the crisis, and I've just been writing on this, is you don't make decisions in the center, you coordinate in the center and you distribute decision making. And I think that's the future of government. Government has got to coordinate, not decide. And I think if you look at like a, a democracy, I mean, theoretically, that is the way that it can work because you, you've got a, whole, a diversity of people representing a greater diversity of people, but that's not the way it works because we channel it. You know, you're this party or that but party. But it can't because democracy evolved for small populations where people knew who they were electing. That doesn't apply anymore. So mm. people aren't, aren't electing based on personal interaction or knowledge. I mean, when I was growing up, politicians would turn up and speak to an audience for two or three hours and they got shot down if they didn't know what they're doing. Now it's a soundbite generation on television. So I think this concept of one person, one vote is not sustainable in a world the way we have because it's not possible to make long-term decisions. And this is something we've got to face up to, right? Is if you have a three, four-year election cycle, nobody's going to do anything about global warming, right? So some of the pressure to give agencies more power, but local delegation on, on other aspects, we've got to rethink that because if we don't make some key decisions in the next decade, then there ain't going to be a planet left for humans. Mm -hmm. right? And I don't see people really prepared to make that sacrifice. And I see ideological obsessions, yeah, which will actually stop that. Ironically, the Chinese may be better at it than anybody else because they can see the long term and they can make those decisions. It may be harsh in the process. But what survives is, is, is that. What's interesting is this culminating conversation is around the 50th anniversary of Earth Day today. So where is the impact going forward? David talked about the peer-to-peer. -to, -peer. to establish a new paradigm of uh, sharing, understanding, and communicating with a certain amount of respect, it would have to be in that curation of this platform. It can't be the social media flamethrowers going in every direction and infuriating everyone. So there's got to be a methodology in play. But the big question is that I've got is that, so what happens in this next two-year period as the world shifts and people shift in probably a very permanent way, a new way of walking, what happens if the internet folds? I don't think it has to be the worst, the worst case scenario. I, I can think of worse, but I think, I mean, I don't think it's going to go down. We get a solar flare, it goes down, but then the level of the problem we got is, is much higher, right? Um, and I think the issues are more social and technical. And I think that's a matter of increasing interdependency. So let me give you two examples. So we just launched a, pro a narrative project to understand what's called the numinous. So this goes back to a Lutheran theologian called Otto, who wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. And I, I'm a good Catholic, so for me to quote a Lutheran means it must have some value in it. <laughs> I also got picked up by Karl Rahner, who was the main Jesuit philosopher behind Vatican II. But it's the basic concept that human beings have a sense of abstraction, a sense of the other, a sense of the holy. And sometimes it manifests in different religious forms, but it doesn't have to manifest in religion. So one of the things we're actually looking at now actively, and there's a big narrative project going online on Monday on this, is the concept of something greater than yourself. And if you look at the papal encyclical on the environment, my doubt is say, 
it basically says human beings have a responsibility as a part of the planet. It's not something we exploit, we're part of it. We've we got to rethink identity. Because at the moment, the dominant identity structure is Northern Europe, North America, which is all about the individual. And that's only sustainable when you've got infinite resources and infinite expansion. Uh, Celtic fringe of Britain, Southern Europe, Africa, Asia are commutarian. So they define themselves by their interactions, not by individuals. Now, I think that's where it gets interesting, because if we can see ourselves in our interactions with ourselves, other people, with the planet, with us, the resources, then that localization gives us a type of identity which is more sustainable. And then you get international cooperation through agencies, not governments. Um, because as far as I can see, there ain't a government in the world which doesn't think around the next election cycle. Mm. And that's going to kill us. I think... Um the Australian Aboriginal, uh, the Australian Indigenous culture is a very good example of that. Uh, most people don't realise it's the oldest continuous culture on the planet. It's about 60,000 years, although it's very diverse because they, you know, they had lots and lots of tribes. But absolutely, they believe and act in a way that they are part of the environment. So, you know, they they interact with the environment as one of the components of it. It's in their stories. It's in the way that they share their knowledge through uh, through dance and and, uh, and story. And that, I think, is extremely sustainable. But unfortunately, you know, uh, the, the modern world runs on efficiencies of economies. It's not the most efficient way to live, but it's by far the most sustainable way to live. Yes, but it's also rural, I think, Arthur, and that's the issue, all right? So you can see the same thing if I go to rural Nepal or I go to rural Wales or rural Scotland, where you have low-density populations which are dependent on the land, you get that type of identity. And I did a lot of work in Darwin in the 70s, you know, mm -hmm. when, to be quite honest, it was genocide. It wasn't racial prejudice. Yes. It was genocide. Right? True. I mean, I still remember one of the Aboriginal activists I was working with was literally murdered in front of me by my insecurity guard. And we went to the police and they said, it's only an Abbot. But the reality is the population density of the world can't sustain an agricultural lifestyle. So we can learn things like gifting from that, but we've also got to learn things like, for example, the city-states, because the only way we're going to be able to handle global warming and food deprivation is to put more people into cities because cities are more efficient at managing large populations than the land. And also, for most of the land around the equator, within 15 years, you're going to have to be in air conditioning for three hours of the day, otherwise you'll die. So we've got to rethink the way we do that. I mean, one of the things which I was talking about in Singapore recently is smaller personal living space, but larger collective space, yeah, rather than the other way around. Because we also know if you get high concentrations of human beings, it's like high concentration of rats, you get pheromone-triggered riots. Right? So that we, we, we've got to take a much more scientific approach to this than we are at the moment. And we've got to think about how you create sustainable urban living because that's going to be the majority of the population. What's the biggest hinge point? Where's the heaviness on this gate to flip us to go to the new hybrid way? I think what you need is international institutions which deal with the big issues and smaller governments which deal with the local issues. 
So I've argued, I mean, that, that for me is why the stupidity of England leaving Europe, yeah? Um, because Scotland didn't, and we now know Wales didn't. It was the English immigrants in the north who gave the majority. I mean, they're making a point about that. Um, you need people at a transnational level to make the hard decisions, but you need local control of things like culture, education, the things which matter to people, where you need diversity. And I think the world's got to move into that sort of model. So the moves to give the WHO almost military power in an academic, to me, that's just a brain-dead decision. The issue is, will governments go along with it? Right? Now, I think there's a chance that might happen. I don't. The attempt to blame the WHO doesn't seem to be working very well. And I think people are now afraid for their lives, so they prefer to trust the WHO than Trump or than Boris. Yeah? So I think there's an opportunity for the international agencies to actually stand up on this and, and get something done. But it's not going to be easy, all right? We, I mean, the good thing about this is we've all got used to living at home and not having the freedoms we did before. Well, you know, that, that's kind of like going to be increasingly the norm. And we've actually proved as a species, I think this is reasonably impressive, that we can take that sacrifice. So how do we build on that? And, and there's a book by Terry Eagleton, which I'd recommend anybody read. It's called Radical Sacrifice. It um, came out last year. And Terry's a brilliant guy. He and I were the editor or editorial board of Slam back in the 70s. But he produces a book every year or so. Brilliant book on terrorism, which traced it back to Diogenes. But the concepts of, of hope and grace and sacrifice, which are common to most world religions, those are the things we need. and We need to reinvent what they mean. Getting enough people to understand this in the old normal was impossible because people were focused on, you know, self and, and efficiency and maximising their own personal wealth and things like that at the expense of the world. So there's, a, there's an extraction mentality. Uh, um, what Dave was saying before Is about it if we're... Really speaking with your open cast mind, was it? Sorry? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, extraction. I couldn't, couldn't the irony of an Australian talking about extraction, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, 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 well, like I said, I didn't vote for our government. I don't like the way that we operate because, because it is unsustainable. But our voices are not being heard by enough people. Mm -hmm. Dave has a big following. You know, your podcasts have a following. But that's not critical mass enough to be able to make this. And this is why we need a crisis to get people to look for, you know, that, that, that alternative you know, uh, um, the adjacent possible. They're not even thinking about an adjacent possible. They're thinking about how do I maximise my own sort of well-being, and that's normally financial well-being, within the current possible. But when you, when you totally disrupt that, you then got the opportunity. There's a window there to see, well, maybe we can do something different. Like, I was stunned. There was an interview of a person, and the media was saying, oh, this poor person, he's down to his last $30. Two days after he lost his job. Clearly, there was no strategic thinking whatsoever. And okay, some people have a challenged life and all sorts of things. I get that. Yeah, it's not speaking from a privileged point of view. But there's nowhere near enough balance between the long-term strategic way of living, planning for the unpredictable events, because they do happen. They, they, they inevitably happen. And far too much tactical in the in in the moment. Now you need both, but the balance isn't right. Mm -hmm. And if we can get that yeah. argument to a wider audience, we'll be better off. And if I was being radical, what I would have done in the UK is I wouldn't have tried to repurpose the social service system to handle 
people down because it's a our, our social wage system was designed to prevent people making claims, not to handle millions of claims. Um, I think there was actually a strong case for effectively defining a national minimum wage and issuing food rations and actually taxing everything above that. Mm. Yeah, and, and that a government could have got away with, right? Could literally could have got away with because it's all in it together and getting everybody within the same bounds. And there's quite an interesting thing here. If you look at the way Singapore manages its housing, which to my mind is genius, this went back to you know, Minister Mentor as was, is they're racially mixed, but they're economically banded. So you live in a housing block with people in, with similar income groups to you, but from racial, racially diverse backgrounds. And they have very little racism because it's income diversity which causes the resentment. Right? And I think that's the thing Piketty had also pointed out, is we're back to 16th and 17th century levels of income inequality, yeah, whereas it actually had been going down until the sort of 70s or 80s. So I think that's something else government can, ad can address, right? We, we need to radically reduce the disparity of people's lifestyles. You know, I'll give an example. I had an argument with the Labour Party a few years ago in the UK, and I said what we should do is announce you know, national conscription because it will confuse the hell out of the Conservatives because the Labour Party is meant to be for that, so that's one tactic. But I said what we basically say is you can do two years in the army, you can do two years in overseas work, yeah? If you do that, then we'll pay your university fees and give you a decent grant because you've gifted your two years of your life to the community. Therefore, we'll gift you your education. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to do that, well, you pay full rates. The motivation on that, apart from to get a better education for people, was to say we need people at a very early age before they get into lockdown to see obligation, a part, you know, obligation is something that they do. And it would have meant that young people from Britain were going to work overseas where the sort of, you know, the little Englander mentality couldn't survive encounter with other cultures. So I think we need to be rewarding collective behavior or the, you know, that's the identity meaning thing. Identity has got to come from the clan, not from the individual. Yeah, I think that's right, David. What we worship now is is this you know self wealth and and you see mm. a lot of this in the social media, people following someone simply because they're famous, and, and you go well you know what, what what's the point of that you know I want to uh, respect someone who is adding value not extracting value, uh, but there's not enough people and okay you could always argue well that's egotistical and you just want people to be the same as you, no I want to belong to a community of people. Who, who have that mutual respect around things of value, not, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're famous for, for being famous, if you like. Yeah, and I think that there's a related key concept here. I mean, I gave a lecture on this the other day, and I said basically what we need is coherent heterogeneity, not homogeneity. There's kind of like a sort of new age fluffy bunny approach, which says we should all share the same values, the same beliefs, and have the same objectives. I mean, that would be actually be a disaster because the more similar you are, the more likely you are to conflict. But also it would reduce resilience in the system. So the way I explained it the other day is, you know, I'm, I'm Welsh. We have four rugby teams in Wales. My, my rugby team is Cardiff Blues, who are, you know, honest, you know, honest guys with a high level of integrity. 
who played the best rugby out, but we got this bloody idiot down at Clinetley who bribed the referee, can't be trusted, and a bunch of thugs, right? Uh, but when the English come, we're all Welsh. That's coherent heterogeneity. So we're different, but we can be similar. And I think the the drive for common values, common beliefs, the sort of sangi type stuff, is actually really dangerous because you need enough diversity in the system that people can feel different, but not so much diversity that leads to conflict. And I think that's the other key thing on society design. The base elements of that concept are uh, the value system that the construct is built upon in some agreed fashion. Everybody's got to at least agree what or be part of a hierarchy of understanding of what what does it mean to be a citizen? Maybe we need to look at what's at the base root of being a citizen of the planet as a human being, not as a tribal representative, not of a, a demographic of monetary value or where you're from or north, south, east, west. If we could get to a higher level of understanding, if we could just get to the fidelity of understanding that the separations between us are pretty much manufactured, for the most part, by someone. Okay, can I agree and disagree? All right? It's actually easier to get agreement on negatives and positives. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, like everybody else, I read fairy stories to my children. Right? The fairy stories weren't Dick and Jane stayed at home, achieved the family KPIs and did what mummy and daddy said. Yeah, they, they were kind of like negative, right? And and we know the human brain picks up negativity faster than positives because avoidance of failure is a more successful strategy. So when I've been working with organizations on creating a common sense of direction, I've generally done it by getting an agreement on what we don't want to be okay. and leaving open evolutionary possibilities about what we become. And I think that's kind of like a key solution here because I think... We're not ever going to agree on everything. And the more you set an ideal goal, the more you get conflict. But there's a whole bunch of stuff we can agree we don't want. And if we can focus on that and avoiding it, generally it will kind of like work out. Arthur? I'll, I'll just add to that. Um, um, I completely agree that you don't want to remove the diversity uh, and you do need to create a sense of identity. Um, when I do exercises uh, with the students, I give them a whole bunch of different behaviours and I ask them to sort them into four categories for a particular context. So I say, you know, for this particular context, what behaviours must you have? What is also desirable? What is tolerable and what is intolerable for the context? However, we then look at a different context and we say, well, okay, now sort them out for that context. And um, so it could be something like, you know, brainstorming and prioritisation or, you know, a crisis versus, you know, mentoring someone in good times. So they then resort these behaviours into the different categories and then we overlap them. So you say, well, okay, in that circumstance, you were absolutely expecting that. But over in this circumstance here, you were absolutely rejecting it. So it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle so that everyone has a, a piece where they're most comfortable, but you still need this behavioural adaptability and diversity there. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle. We're all part of the bigger picture, but we're most comfortable sitting on our one little piece or jumping between this piece and that piece and that piece. But doing that consciously, consciously deciding, you know, where you are, what your current context is, what behaviour is appropriate to that context and then being open to adapt it for different circumstances for good reason. 
There's another thing which comes in here, though, which is the concept of habits and microhabits, because about 80% of the decisions we make aren't conscious, right? And that ain't going to change. That's how we've evolved, and it has major energy efficiencies. So it's the habits of discourse which matter as much as the conscious aspects of discourse. And it's kind of like, you know, that's some of the ways we're brought up, you know. If, it, if it's a bit, this is Aristotle's point as well about education for virtue. If you're ha habituated into politeness, then that changes the way you respond later on. So I, I think that there's a body of cognitive neuroscience here, which we need to draw on, yeah, and also, you know, complexity in anthropology, is habits have a bigger influence than, than effectively exhortation. And building the habits in when people are young is critical. I mean, it's no coincidence. Well, we know the reason for this. You know, kids, racism only creeps in after puberty. It doesn't exist before puberty. And the reason it happens after puberty is you start to lock down based on the prejudices of society you belong in because you've got to kind of like exploit, exploit, right? You've moved from education to exploitation. And some of the stuff we're doing with the Welsh Future Generations Act and everything else is kind of like we need to examine the present and future through the eyes of the young. Yeah, and we need to start to get what we've been working on, which is called transgenerational pairing, which is young people working with people in their grandparents' generation to come up with ideas for improvement. Because the grandparents and the young children are both innovative and they're both flexible in the way they interact. It's kind of like the period between is the hunter-gatherer leader of the tribe exploit. And we've had a lot of success with transgenerational pairs in society-level intervention. So I say this, this sort of rethinking the way we do things. And I think the big problem of the last several decades has been the goal-based objective. We've got to agree what we want to be. And that actually hasn't worked. And scientifically, it never could work Yeah, in terms of the way it works. So it's much the, the things we can manage are how people interact, we can manage what they avoid, and we can manage energy allocation. And we need to start to build around those. So how do we build this knowledge citizenry? How do, how do we make a global impact? We need generalists, not specialists. I mean, it, I mean, one of the disasters at the moment is to focus on um, STEM education. And we, we know, we, for example, art comes before language and human evolution, and art is critical to innovation. And there ain't any generalists left in the world until the age of 50, and we desperately need generalists. So I think, and it's, it's the point I made about debating earlier, right? We, we weren't trained to be critical. We were put in a process which made us critical, which went in parallel with the formal education. Um, we had to learn a poem every week. Now, it actually turns out that's really useful for cognitive neuroscience. And it actually develops your symbolic capability for later life. And now we know from epigenetics that your children will inherit that. And if you don't have that, your children won't inherit it. So you know, a lot of this is about working very quickly right, um, in the younger age groups. But as I say, don't underestimate the older age group because you get high plasticity when people pass their late 40s, 50s. So innovation in the humanities tends to be when you're older because it's about synthesis. Innovation when you're young is about flashes of insight. So we need to combine that, right, um, and give us a pattern forward. Arthur? I, I, I agree. And, and we, these are the kinds of uh, alternative possible uh, that 
we need to explore now and we've got the attention of to say, well, you know, the system is broken. What we need to do is something different. So getting uh, uh, the, the, the time to act to get the right people involved in these conversations is really important. When I'm working with people, I say, you know, education is about opening minds, not filling them, um, and getting them to be able to see more possibilities, not just to remember the stuff that is already known. Mm-hmm. And if you can get these, you know, there's this creative friction going on between new alternative ideas and, you know, sort of really robust dialogue, a robust discussion, argument around, you know, sort of this versus that, you can then actually find a whole spectrum of possibilities in between. But if you're just arguing this and not that, you know, my side versus yours, black or white, you know, left or right, you know, blue or red, whatever it is, then nobody's shifting their mindset. Nobody's opening their mindset. They're just advocating a point of view. White light is a rainbow, right? Let's let's open it up and look at all the different possibilities there and then start making decisions about which ones of those are better for which circumstances. Um, and you don't want to destroy the diversity. You want to open the diversity and be open-minded about the other possibilities, but respectful of the uh, of the other opinions. You don't have to agree, but you can say, "Well, okay, I understand that that might work for you. I wouldn't do it because of these reasons, but I, you know, completely uh, uh, accept your your right to to act that way." Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you're just a, a mean bastard that uh, <laughs> just wants everything all the time. And that happens, right? Yeah, yeah. And the biggest thing you could do in the States is to make people realize that reading Anne Rand after, puri- after puberty is a perverted action. Say that again, please. Reading Anne Rand after puberty and taking her seriously is perverse. Mm. It's the only country which does that, right? The concept that selfishness is ethical, mm. and she epitomizes that. You know, the famous speech at West Point where she said that Native Americans and Arabs had no rights because they had no concept of of property. Yeah, there's some some archetypal characters around at the moment who still have credence. And if those people are our heroes, God help us. Absolutely agree with that. And and I'm more inclined to, you know, take an alternative point of view uh, than, than to agree. But the big challenge here is the wrong people have the influencing voices it's not that we're saying you know there's there's dumb loud people and you know the 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 meek and the meek shall inherit the earth that that's that's really not going to happen what we need to do is to have more diversity of dialogue and more people listening to that diversity and they would then come to realize some of these arguments where they've been worshipped are just not right, you know, or there are better alternatives. Why would you go down that path when you can come down this time? And, okay, that might give you immediate sort of, you know, self-gratification, but this one over here will give you, you know, a much better lifestyle for, for the rest of your life and a more sense of belonging to something that is of more social value. Human beings are social creatures. They need that connection, but we're connecting to the wrong things for the wrong reasons, and that's the problem. I mean, and I completely agree with you, but the problem is human decision-making is short-term, not long-term. So we've got to find ways in which short-term decision-making meets long-term needs. Admonition won't work, right? People will not think long-term, they'll think short-term. So we need to actually build around that. It goes back to what you had said about the building of the habits. We just need better habits. Hmm. 
society yeah. and personally. So on that note, gentlemen, I want to thank you for coming together and bringing this uh, wonderful conversation in a robust way in this format. Thank you very much. Always, always a pleasure. I, I, I love engaging about different ideas and having a good argument about them. It's, it's, it's the way we make a better world. And I'll go back to some more Romanian firewater. <laughs> <laughs> because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>